Micah 5 is where I would turn your attention to this morning. Uh, Micah is a complex little book of the Bible. It's a minor prophet. It doesn't mean that that Micah is in the minor leagues in terms of prophets. Uh, He's as major as Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel. It's just called minor in terms of it's a smaller book. It's a smaller prophecy, but taking a deep dive into Micah was uh, something that uh, sort of knocked the wind out of me. I had grabbed a um, some work I had done years and years ago on Micah and looked at it and kind of had to toss that aside and start afresh and started looking in Micah and, and drowning a bit. So I, I went to one of my favorite preachers, John Piper, and, and found that he had preached a sermon in 1982 uh, in the general thrust and the general direction that I felt the Lord had laid on my heart to go. 1982, I was 10 years old when John preached that. He was 36, I was 10, watching 80s TV. And, um, but the sermon that I grabbed, and you can look it up um, later on to compare the two, it's called From Bethlehem in the Majesty of the Name of the Lord. It was helpful. So I thought I would give him some credit for helping me frame um, this sermon and think through Micah in short order. But I assure you, this is a fresh word from God's word. It's the Sunday before Christmas, and we've been talking about hope this morning as a service theme. We need hope as believers. We need a divine shepherd to give us hope. And the reason for that is because the Christmas season is mingled with incredible joy for Christians who have hope in Christ, but it's mingled also with sadness. We have joy over the ones that we love and family and friends, even as you're seated together this morning. And we have a tinge or perhaps a weight of sadness in our hearts over loved ones whom we've lost or are estranged from. That's what Christmas does. This is the natural mingling of those two emotions, joy and sadness. Our hearts pull in a double-pull direction. In this time of year, it's a spike and it's a, it's a dip, but it's normal. And I want to point us to prophecy because prophecy gives us some handholds, gives us some things to grab onto as we navigate joy and sadness. Prophecy is amazing and often in the Old Testament, not always, but often in the Old Testament, prophecies speak to something that's happening in the immediate time that it was prophesied in the now, but it also points future to the not yet, the now and the not yet. It's like looking at mountain ranges when we as Alaskans sometimes get up high and can see mountain ranges. It looks like mountains are right next to each other, but when you get above them, there are deep valleys in between the mountain ranges. We know that well going due east, right? And so All that to say prophecies are very similar. They speak to something that's happening immediately, and it speaks to something in the future. And in a very real way, as Christians, we need something that helps us right now, right now, today, as you're sitting there, nursing your heart, thinking through your own soul's needs. You want something to hit you today. But that today also can look forward to tomorrow or the future where you have something stored up waiting for you in glory. Christ's return. 
The sacrifice of sins that affect you now, but the sacrifice of sins that will affect your future forever, right? You have a, a faith that is unwavering and unshaken and it's sealed and it's, it's there for you as an inheritance waiting for you to enjoy for all of eternity. That's the now and the not yet that prophecies give us in Scripture. So Micah is, perhaps for you as it was for me this week, it's kind of an unfamiliar book. It's something that we read at, but you don't always explore it in detail. So I want to build the scene of Micah a bit so that Micah 5 hits you where it needs to hit you. If you look at Micah 1.1, the very first verse, it sets the stage. The word of the Lord that came to Micah at Morashath in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Micah at Morishath, he was on a little mountain um, in obscurity. He was in just off on his own, 30 miles outside of the city, and he's seeing things about kings, kings that were ruling and reigning in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom, which is where Israel is, and Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom, and that's Judah. So you have Israel and Judah, if you're thinking in terms of a, of a map or topography. And Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, these are kings that reign between 735 and 700. So they're reigning, you know, BC is moving backwards. So it's 735 in descending order, 35 years to 700. And during these times in these two regions, the northern and southern kingdom, things were rough. Things were bad. And you might think now in our country, things are going well or trending better, but as a whole, things have been pretty bad, especially spiritually and morally. Well, think in terms of these kingdoms are God's country and things are really bad and maybe doubly bad because they were given the law of God and God created this country, created this people. They're split in half because of sins. And so judgment was coming and God would use neighboring regions and kingdoms to assault his people to chastise them. Assyria took the 10 northern tribes into captivity in 722 BC. Assyria also invaded and occupied Judah in the southern region, besieging God's holy city in Jerusalem. This is God's city that is inhabited and now dominated by the pagan Assyrians. So grasping this background, it it gives you the context for if you were to read Micah about how it kind of jerks you back and forth between threats of judgment and doom and then promises of hope. And both messages are warranted during this time. This is reading Micah is to see things get really bad and really dark and, and they're warranted, but that darkness is the backdrop to light that is to come. Right? You, have to, you have to see how things are really bad and why they're bad before you can see how things can be right or made right and can become really good, right? We have to see our sin before we can see grace. You have to see the truth about yourself before you can see grace and believe it's real and believe it's necessary. How bad was it? Well, Micah 1, 6 through 7, therefore, I will 
makes Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Okay, why? All her carved images shall be beaten it to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols will lay waste. I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. There's greed. There's immorality. And then there was corruption in the priesthood and in the politics. Micah 3, 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers, the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bride. Listen to this. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Practice divination. Prophets in the name of God doing witchcraft for money. Yet they lean on the Lord. That's sarcasm. And they say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of a wooded height. Rulers hate justice. They're perverting equity. They're shedding blood. They're taking bribes. Priests are taking money. They're money grubbers. They're leveraging the crowds for money. So Samaria is a heap of ruins. And this happened in 722 BC. Samaria was, was taken away into captivity. And, you know, we think about that historically and biblically in Bible history, but that's horrible. Think about part of our country just, just being taken away to a different country where suddenly part of our country is just transplanted into the middle of North Korea or somewhere, right? And that's the judgment of God on friends and family and loved ones. And some are remaining home and some are stripped away in there. That's where it was in 586. God would bring to pass Jerusalem being exiled to Babylon. That's that's. Micah 4.10, Micah didn't see that day. He was long dead before that would happen, but he was predicting it. It wasn't Micah's fault. It was Israel's fault. It was Jerusalem's fault. But that was what was coming, idolatry, coveting. It didn't stop, so judgment came. At the same time, Micah predicts hope. Micah describes what God requires for glory to dawn in Israel. And this is what restoration looks like. I mean, cue the worship song music, right? Micah 6.8. Oh, come on. You guys have sung that. You're singing it in your mind right now. I know it. I know you are. All right. But listen, Micah 6, 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Think of the desperation in this verse. The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What do I need to do? What do I need to do to make things right? Judgment is coming, right? Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Let's let's move in reverse from what's required here. Three requirements for restoration to be right with God. First, you need childlike dependence. You need humility. A changed heart. That's what God is always looking for. He's not looking for externals. He's not looking for religious sacrifices. He's not looking for you to give your firstborn. Give me a humble heart, a childlike dependence, a heart of mercy to love kindness. 
And then to have an active life for those who are mistreated. To do justice for people. To bring justice. To care about people who we perceive to be unlovable or unreachable. That's what God requires. This is what the Pharisees would not do. If you think of Jesus' most stinging rebukes of the Pharisees, Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, Pharisees, you're a hypocrite. You give tithe and mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Pharisees, you don't have a changed heart. You're religious, and it's damnable. It brings judgment. So where's the mercy? Where's the, where's the mercy of Micah, well, go to the end of Micah, Micah seven eighteen. Who is a God like you? Who is Yahweh like you? And by the way, that's a play on words. The name Micah is a shortening of the word Micaiah, which in Hebrew means who is a God like you? So Micah is this, he, he's basically as a man speaking for God. And he's saying, who is a God like you? This is the answer in his name, Micah, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever, but because he delights in steadfast love, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you hear grace here? You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Now, Micah is a person. He, uh, he's bringing a message of grace to a needy people. God is a person, but he's invisible. I bring this up to say it's hard to connect the hope of Micah for the context of the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom to our heart and lives today. If you're anything like me, it's difficult. If we were to stop right here and in the sermon, it's almost like a portrait's been painted without the person being in the portrait. Who is the person? Who is the point? Where is the hope? Well, I want to tell you something. As Christians, we have such an incredible opportunity to grasp this concept. And that is that hope is a person. Hope is a person. Hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our hearts warm, or they should, with love and affection for Christ. Because he knows where you are. He knows the idolatry that's going on in your life. He knows your idle struggle. John Calvin called it hearts are factory of idols that are forming idols all the time. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what you need. He knows what you need now and he knows what you need in the future. He knows what your life is like when you feel like you've been taken by the Assyrians into exile. You're exiled from people, exiled from joy, exiled from what you want, which is a life in fellowship with God. He's shown you, oh man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you. 
He wants you to have childlike dependence. He wants you to have loving kindness. He wants you to meet the needs of others and justice. And you want you to do that. But the reason that that river runs dry in your life is you forget about the person, don't you? Who is the person in your life that should be the center of the portrait of your heart? It's the Lord Jesus. Jesus is hope. Hope is a person. Without the person of the Lord Jesus, we're hearing the story of Micah, but it's a storyline without a punchline, isn't it? It's broad strokes without the fine strokes that meet our needs. If we're completely honest, we need much more than an Old Testament story to stir our hearts. We need Christ. So let's look at Christ in Micah chapter 5, okay? Let's find him here because all of the Bible is about Christ. All of the Old Testament centered on Christ. Jesus Christ said himself, risen from death, he said to the two on the road to Emmaus, it was all about me. The prophets, the law, it was all about me. And it is, it's all about the Lord. Verses 1 to 3, hope has come in humility. Listen as I read. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. That verse is to show how leadership had failed in the people of God, the northern and southern kingdom. They'd been stricken on the cheek. And troops are against them. Verse 2, here's the contrast. You have failed leadership and then you have a true leader. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Stop there. The contrast picture that's painted is between a failed government, a failed people, failing armies, a failed leadership versus, I mean, what, what the world would say, that's, that's God's theocracy and that's big compared to this small, tiny, little, obscure town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Bethlehem is called, it means house of bread. It means it was sort of a, a grain, you know, fields of grain, a, a bread-making place, a place to harvest for making bread. Ephrathah is meaning fruitful. You, people had vineyards there. But really, it was 300 people. This is a tiny, this is an Alaskan village. Seriously, I was thinking, what's the comparable? That's it. Where did... The Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the second person of the Godhead come from? Tiny, little, tiny, little, obscure Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Not the Bethlehem up in Galilee. Not that Bethlehem. This Bethlehem. That one. That's how obscure this was. We're not used to Bethlehem being unfamous, are we? Bethlehem is famous to us. It's amazing to us. It's a place where we'd want to fly and go see, right? But not then, it was just a nowhere town, tiny and obscure. Why? Why did, why did God choose Bethlehem? Well, it's in one sense, it's, it's tying that little town to David, King David, 
who precedes this moment, who was called from that town. He was a Bethlehemite. But that's not the real reason that Bethlehem is brought up. It's that Bethlehem is small. That's God's point. God chooses small things to make himself great. If Jesus came from a compelling city, like Jesus from New York City or Jesus from L.A. or Jesus from wherever, right? Anywhere. Pick any massive city, Hong Kong or wherever. Anywhere in the world that's a known place. That's not how God works. God wants to raise up the Lord from obscurity. From something that man couldn't think up as something out of the way, something obscure to then change the course of world history for all of eternity. Why does he do it this way? It's because God is absolutely free from us. He's free from anything that we could concoct or think up or, or formulate. He's unimpressed by our perceived bigness. Anything we think is large in our own lives, anything that we think pumps our pride or makes us feel good about ourselves, he's not about that. He's magnifying his own greatness and his own mercy through Bethlehem. God chose to replace King Saul, sending Samuel to that little town to affirm David. And that foreshadows Christ coming. But remember how Samuel shows up and he's says, hey, Jesse, you know, I'm here to choose the next king of Israel. Saul is disqualified, though he's still king, but we're going to anoint today for my horn of oil the new king, the new incumbent leader of God's people. So Jesse's like, oh, man, I got big, strong, strapping older brothers which I have a bigger, older brother. I like this story, right? You go through one brother, another older brother, another older brother, another older brother. Uh, Is that all you have? Really? Are there no more? Well, there's little David, little baby of the family over there. He won't amount to anything. Bring him here. This is the one. The baby brother becomes the leader. God chooses small things, insignificant things to bless through so that God can get the glory Chose a slingshot to, David chose a slingshot to slay Goliath. So little David slays giant Goliath. God works through slingshots, mangers, youngest sons, and mustard seeds. Why? Well, if you go to the story where David slew Goliath, go to 1 Samuel seventeen forty five. it tells us, remember David, he... And I love this, the context it shows, and you've, you've heard this nuance before, but David, when he saw Goliath, he ran at Goliath. I love that. You ever picture that? Like, there's Goliath. He's all armored up. He's ready to go. And little David's just like, I got God on my side. I'm out. I'm just, just running, running away from, you know, my army behind me. I'm running right into this battle because he was fully confident that what? The battle belonged to the Lord. He said, you come with me with sword and spear and with javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of 
the armies of Israel whom you have defied. The day of the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You say, God can't use me. What, you're not foolish enough? Think about that. God chooses the not many mighty and the not many noble. You say, but God has allowed this thing to happen in my life. I can't be used of God. Maybe God is bringing you low enough so that then you can be used enough, right? Because if you're not brought low, you might actually take some credit for what God does or is doing through you. It's not what God does. 1 Corinthians 1, 27, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I like this. This is straight from John Piper, but it, it's good. God chose a stable so no innkeeper could say, he chose my inn. God chose a manger so no woodworker could say, he chose the craftsmanship of my bed. He chose Bethlehem so no one could say, our city constrained God's divine choice. Chose Bethlehem. He chose Bethlehem, why? He chose Bethlehem so that it takes faith to believe the message. You have to, to accept the Lord Jesus, you have to take it by faith. If, if the world made Christ... No one would believe in him. Think about it. If Christ was made through hype or through wealth, he wouldn't be compelling. It would make us skeptical. Hope came, has come, wrapped in humility. That's what makes Christ compelling to our hearts so it makes the gospel compelling. The gospel is grace. Accepting Christ is accepting grace. It's accepting things by faith, not by works. You are justified by grace. You are given righteousness. You are given Christ. You are given sonship. You are given adoption. You are given an inheritance because of grace, not because of anything we have done. It had to be Bethlehem. It had to be something that was... On the face, completely uncompelling. That then we see by faith and receive and our hearts are melted where we can do nothing without it. We must have Bethlehem. We must have Christ from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who's in the line of David, chosen, picked out of obscurity in our hearts. We see him and we say, man, we choose Christ a king who is unlikely but perfect. Hope has come as a king. Look at the next series of verses. Verse 2, it says, Who's coming forth is from old. That's tying back more to David and him being part of the line of David from ancient days. Some will say that's from eternity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He's from the beginning. The second member of the Trinity, God the Son, is timeless. He's eternal. But he's from ancient days. 
Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. This is God giving the northern kingdom up and the southern kingdom up into exile, into captivity. And when she who is in labor, that's Israel, has given birth, then the rest of the brothers shall return. Then they return to the land, to the people of Israel. The remnant has come. The believing Israel has come. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. This is pointing not just to the now, but the future. And the future prophecy is the millennial kingdom. When Jesus Christ will sit on a physical throne, that's how I take it, on a physical throne for a thousand literal years, the millennial kingdom ruling and reigning and the 144,000 representing the remnant of God, the Israel of God, the people of God, ethnic Israel who are believing in the Messiah Christ are regathered. There's an in-gathering. That's what this speaks to. But does this just speak to a future king. He's king now and he's king to the future. He's a coming ruler who comes as a shepherd to feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. Now, people reading this in the times of Micah would immediately be thinking of two people. They would be thinking of David and they'd be thinking of the Messiah. They would be putting those two things together. They would they'd be linking the now and the future with this promise. David came, David was established, Solomon after David was established, and the Messiah will be established. Second Samuel 7 does this. Samuel was saying, I will raise up your offspring, verse 12, who will come from your body. He'll establish a kingdom. He'll build a house in your name. Who's he speaking to there? He's speaking there to Solomon, physical Solomon. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He's speaking of Solomon. He's speaking of Christ there. It's amazing how prophecy works. I'll be a father to him and he will be a son to me. Uh, when he commits iniquity, that's got to be Solomon committing iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men. That's against Solomon with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, meaning sin and sin situations, whom I put away from before you. And then verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. You have Saul, his sin, but you have a kingdom that is unshaken that's going on. You have David, you have his sin, his adultery, his murder, his, his, his pride, and, and, and God keeps the kingdom going. Then you have Solomon, who, who is the wisest man who ever lived, and yet he gets involved in multiplied immoralities, and, immoral, and God's kingdom keeps going. And northern and southern kingdom are split, but God's kingdom keeps going. You have exile. You have Babylonian captivity. You have a return a kingdom that keeps going, and you have a kingdom that is established forever. Is that not a picture of our lives? You keep going. You keep going. You keep going. You think it's ripped away forever, but God, if you are in Christ, he is covenanted to you in the same way, this commitment to always be there for you, to carry you all the way to the end because your kingdom is in Christ. It's a kingdom that's forever. That's where the hope is. Hope has come. Jesus came. He fulfilled this in Bethlehem and hope is coming. What's amazing is, that when this promise is made, things are absolutely sinking 
in Israel, sinking. They were sinking towards oblivion. Northern kingdom was destroyed and Micah was predicting the fall of Judah. When life feels like a giant contrast with the message that I'm preaching, that's when you need these promises most of all. Everything in you, everything in you wants to say, these promises won't help me. I don't have hope. It's like a child who's saying, look, that medicine tastes so bad, I won't take it. And they're sick. If your heart is sick, take the medicine. Take the promise to heart. Take the flame of Christ and warm your heart. Bring it close to your heart. Think about Jesus. Don't think about him just as Christmas holiday message time. Think about Jesus. He came and he came for you. And he's coming again. And you're part of this plan. You're part of this program as a believer. That's the hope that we have. Alaskans more than perhaps anyone know that life is fragile. Things happen. There are difficulties. Weather, climate, culture, danger. People are dangerous here. We need Christ. And the fragility of life sometimes can be a very healthy thing because it drives us to what's solid. What's solid is the Lord, his word, the grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Christ is the word. He stands forever. The truth is forever. Hope is a person, right? Amen? Hope is a person. So it's not a concept. Hope is not a holiday. Hope is not a circumstance. Hope is not your family. Hope is not money. Hope is Christ, period. You get there and then other good things are happening mingled with sadness, but hope is Christ, period. There's nothing more firm in the world in Christ, all that happened to the Jews was actually to open the door for the Gentiles. Romans 15, 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. It's Romans 15, 8 and 9. In order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy and sing to your name. Well, for this to matter... Christ's rule has to translate into our daily experience, doesn't it? For Christ to matter to you, you have to embrace him as your shepherd, your daily shepherd. Think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. That is spoken and quoted and placarded and everywhere. But think about that. What that is, is that's the theology of my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. Christ is sufficient. Christ is all you need. That's what it means to be a sheep who walks behind and follows the shepherd. You hear his voice. You follow his lead. You say, shepherd, I need hope. You're with me. Help me. Valleys of the shadow of death come now. And he's forever our shepherd, but he's our shepherd now. And I just want to show you this from verse 4. Look at this. And he shall 
stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. This is Christ pictured in the millennium, but this is Christ now. He stands. What does that mean? Well, he's not lying around. He's not up on his toes, you know, kind of lost around, not thinking. He's not waiting for us to serve him. If we have embraced Christ, Christ is in your life. You should ask yourself, what idolatries, what idols, what sins are hindering me from seeing what Christ is always doing in my life all the time anyway? He's the shepherd. He's not waiting around for us. He's alert. He's working. He's moving. Verse 4, it says again, and shepherd, that's a verbal there. He shepherds his flock. He feeds us. He leads us. He guides us by still waters. He gives us pasture to rest in. He meets our needs and doesn't leave us unsatisfied. Thirdly, we walk in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Um, Do you realize That no matter how physically frail you may feel, that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can rest in God's strength. Physical frailty? What about emotional frailty? That's real. We can rely upon God and it's God who has all power. It's omnipotent. It's like the endless bank account. That can never be exhausted. You can't even touch it. You, you, can't, you can't move it off of completely full. God is our source and he's all we need. If we will only but rest in him. This is Christ when he said, take my yoke upon your back. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. Uh, that's the idea. Not that you're taking on a heavy burden to follow Christ. That's, it's not that picture. Yeah, we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and we follow Christ. We're willing to die for him. But when we are willing to die for Christ, there is a lightning, L-I-G-H-T-E-N-I-N-G, a lightning. There is, there's a lift. As one person put it, it's like we, you know, the yoke comes on our shoulder, and then Christ lifts us up, and we're able to walk along. He, he's our strength. He's the Proverbs 31 woman who can smile at the future. It's, it's hope. You say, you know, life seems dark right now, but I've got the power of God in my life and there's hope, there's freedom there and that doesn't run out. Trusting Christ, it gives strength to walk as obedient sheep behind him and overcome every obstacle by grace and for joy. Look at verse four again. It's for the glory of his name, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, those on earth and those under the earth. Our world bows the knee to Christ, 
And that speaks to the mission of today. It's, it's a message that goes to the ends of the earth. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's why we give. That's why we preach. That's why we populate the message online and send it out. That's why you as people know people. The greatest way to populate a message is through word of mouth. And as you talk about Christ and as you live the gospel, the gospel is going out to the ends of the earth. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Now let's Let's just contrast where we began in Micah 5 to the end, just real quick in your mind's eye. Bethlehem of Ephrathah, 300 people, not even listed amongst the, amongst the clans of Judah. Obscurity, obscurity, obscurity. This is like your life, just small, little, insignificant. And God takes this baby out of obscurity changes everything for eternity. Glory, honor, millennial kingdom, eradicating the devil, new heavens, new earth, the glory of God forever and ever, myriads and myriads of angels worshiping him, glorifying him. This is our Christ. This is hope that has come. And this is hope that is coming, and you are part of this line, this life. You are part of this sovereign plan. Do you believe it? Grab on to these handholds of hope, the now and the future, the now and the not yet. Anticipate that, feel that in your heart, and enjoy the hope of Jesus Christ.